I want to start. This is a very fascinating and very relevant topic. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a. Uh, l- l- just listen to this for a second. The Crystal Restaurant Chain, Pier One Imports, J Crew, Neiman Marcus, J C Penney, Tuesday Morning, GNC, Brooks Brothers. Um, Lord and Taylor, Steinmart, Century 21, right? Do you know what all these have in common? Bankrupt, bankrupt. Yes, all in 2020. So uh, bankruptcy is very, very, a very relevant topic to um, what's going on in the world right now. And um it's, it's, it's an interesting discussion from a legal standpoint, but the, uh, the idea here is that when things are, are challenging, um, we are, you know, there is, there is a, a, an instrument known as uh, bankruptcy, uh, various different chapters. We're gonna focus on, on uh, you know, there's chapter seven, there's chapter 11, there are different, different forms of bankruptcy, but, but in, in its purest form, it's the ability for uh, somebody who owes money to be absolved of their debts. And we wanna, we, we're obviously gonna explore this from a legal standpoint, but we also wanna understand what halacha has to say about this. So, um, you know, and, and it goes, there's two sides to this coin. There is the, the person who has loaned the money that has expectations that they're gonna get paid back. And there's the person who borrowed the money who um, may be on hard times and cannot make ends meet and uh, having a hard time breathing through all of it. So what are they to do? So this is what we're going to be analyzing and trying to understand what, uh, what the Torah has to say. You know, in, in the not too distant past, uh, people who defaulted on their debts were not treated very kindly. In ancient Rome, uh, the law permitted people cutting uh, cutting a debtor to pieces, right? That's not very fun. Um, and in many places, in many societies, there was uh, the debtor uh, or the children were sold into slavery to pay off the debt. So let's let's start with a, a very interesting. Uh, we read this in in Shul every year, and let's read this case study here. Um, Go ahead, um, go ahead, Donna. Thank you. Now a woman, a wife of one of the disciples of the prophets cried out to Elisha saying, your servant, my husband has died and you know that your servant was God fearing and the creditor has come to take my two children as slaves. Okay, so let's, let's this, is a, this is a fascinating story. We read it uh, uh, in, in Shul. Uh, it's a Haftorah. I'm not remembering right now exactly what Parsha it is. Um, regardless, it is um, the story is of this prophet who, under the wicked queen Jezebel, Izevel, um, she harassed the prophets and um, the, there was a prophet, Ovadia, who saved many of the prophets by hiding them in caves and bringing them food and drink. In order to provide for them, 
um, in order to provide for these prophets, he had to borrow money. And, um, and he indeed borrowed so much money that it came a point where he had all these debts. And, and then to top it all off, he died. So his wife tells the prophet, your servant, my husband has died. And you know that your servant was God-fearing and the creditor has come to take my children, my two children as slaves. So we see a scenario. So the end of the story is that the prophet performs a miracle, tells her to bring all of her empty vessels and she begins to pour with this one flask of oil and the oil continues to flow until all of the flasks are full and then she's able to sell that oil. And there's all kinds of really beautiful spiritual meanings behind the story. But we see here an example straight from the times of the prophets where um, you know, that she was at risk of losing her children on account of this. And this was, this was a common practice and we experienced it throughout Jewish history. I grew up on stories of, of the parrots, the local landowner from the old country who had a, a Jewish family who owed him money and they were gonna throw him into prison and then they would, they would uh, ransom the family. And there was always these righteous people who came along just at the right time and would uh, you know, make things happen to save the family. But, um, you know, the reality is that this was not uncommon. And um, in fact, in, in the year 1824, there was a Londoner by the name of John Dickens, and he was thrown into debtor's prison for an unpaid debt. His family was turned upside down. His 12-year-old 12 12 son had to work labeling bottles to earn a meager six shillings per week. And eventually things improved. And with determination, the young boy achieved his own dreams, which was to become a novelist. And the young boy is Charles Dickens. And now you know the rest of his story. And Charles Dickens in a really obviously well-written, uh, if I may say so myself, um, passage say, shares the following. Um, Sandrine, would you like to read? Don't hear you. <laughs> Take two. 30 years ago, there stood a few doors short of the Church of St. George in the borough of Southwark on the left-hand side of the way going southward, the Marshall Sea Prize prison. It had stood there many years before and it remained there some years afterward, but it is gone now and the world is none the worse without it. It was an oblong pile of barrack building partitioned into squalid houses standing back to back so that there were no back room and were run by a narrow paved yard hemming by high wall duly spiked at top, itself a close and confined prison for debtors. It contained within it a much closer and more confined jail for smugglers. Okay, clearly not a very pleasant place where anybody wants to hang out, okay? So very clearly the, the debtor um, seems to be favored in our modern bankruptcy laws that they don't have to be subject to all of this, this mishigas, this, uh, this harassment and, and torment and so on. But what about the creditor? Why should the creditor lose out on the loan that he gave in good faith, or he or she gave in good faith, to to the uh, to the debtor. 
So, and of course, we want to see what uh, Torah law and Jewish law have to say on this. Lisa, would you like to read for us? A diamond merchant declared bankruptcy according to the laws of a country outside Israel. Accordingly, a settlement was made with his creditors to repay a certain percentage of what he had owed. After living in Israel for a number of years, he succeeded in his affairs and was restored to his financial position. Now his previous creditors are demanding that he repay the rest of what they were owed. However, the merchant claims that since they had agreed to accept a certain percentage of the debts as a settlement, he is exempt from any further collections from a standpoint of both law and decency. What is the law? Okay, so here, thank you for that. So here we are, it's uh, 2020, and we have a modern day situation where somebody has declared bankruptcy, and thus in the country outside of Israel where he received uh, absolute, absolute absolution for his debts, then he comes back to Israel and he had borrowed money from, um, he had borrowed money and now he is restored and they are claiming that uh, he's, gotta, he's gotta collect, they, he's gotta pay, now he's rich, he's got his money back. So what's the law? And again, the question is, what is the law from a Jewish standpoint? Because from a secular standpoint, from a legal standpoint, once the, once the debt is discharged, it's discharged, it's not open anymore. In fact, here's an interesting thing. If you, if you try to pay, if you, a few years back, this was after, I guess it would have been after 2008, it was very common where the, uh, the credit card companies, if you defaulted on your, on your credit card enough times, they would write off the debt or they may make a settlement with you. And once they close the settlement, then if you tried to pay them, they wouldn't take your money. They had nowhere to put it. Because your debt is, there is no debt anymore. Your, your, your account's been cleared. And how are they supposed to categorize that as, as income? It's not debt. It's not. So it's complicated because, but by, Jewish, by secular law, when a debt is discharged, it's discharged. But what about from Jewish law? Does Jewish law even recognize bankruptcy? Is there even a place for such a thing? So According to this scenario, Rabbi Metzger, Rabbi Metzger, the chief, chief rabbi of Israel. Now we have to analyze the situation. He was given this challenge to analyze the situation. And we're going to do that ourselves here tonight. We're going to look at a number of sources and see what we can come up with. So let's start with some uh, a little framework around um, how to treat the debtors. So the first thing the Torah tells us is when you lend money to my people, to the poor person who is with you, you shall not behave toward him as a lender. If you take your neighbor's garment as security, you shall return it to him before sunset, for it is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. In what shall he sleep? And if it shall be, if he cries out to me, I will hear because I am gracious. So what do we see here? We see very clearly the Torah is telling us that just because someone owes you money, you not only have to be compassionate, but you have to be extra compassionate. If, if the collateral, the, the security is his garment, you have to return it to him so he can sleep with it. So, so what happens to the security? There's, there's not much security if you give the security back, but that's what the Torah tells us. You have to have that compassion for that individual. 
Um, we also see that according to biblical law, when a creditor demands payment of his debt, if no property belonging to the debtor is found, or only those items that he is permitted to keep are found, the debtor goes free and we do not imprison him. As it says, you shall not behave toward him as a lender. The guy doesn't have money, can't, you, can't, uh, you can't throw him into jail. And finally, one more source sheet here. It is clear that if the debtor does not have money to pay his debts, the creditor cannot force the borrower to work for him, nor sell him on account of the unpaid debt. This is so even if the borrower stipulated that his body will serve as collateral, it is certainly forbidden to torment him until he pays. So we see clearly in these laws that there is a lot of favor in, in the, uh, on the side of the debtor, um, that the debtor is protected, can't, you can't abuse him, can't harass him, and so on. Do we find in Jewish law any kind of de debt discharge? So there is one possible source, and that is the source of the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year. Donna, read for us, please. At the end of seven years, you shall make a release. This is the manner of the release, to release the hand of every creditor from what he lent his friend. He shall not exact from his friend or his brother, because the time of the release for God has arrived. Okay, so this is a, a, a very powerful law. Um, when the Shemitah year, every seventh year is a Shemitah year known as the sabbatical year, where in the land of Israel, the land uh, is, we're required to leave the land alone, not to work the land, the land has to rest. And um, there are a number of other things that take place during that year. One of which is that any debts which were due as the seven year comes in, and there's a debate whether it's on when the year comes in or when the year leaves, but regardless, any debts that are owed at that point are eliminated. Okay, now it happens to be that there are, uh, there's something called a prusbol. The rabbis instituted a, a uh, protection for, the, for the, uh, the creditors, but we're not gonna get distracted by that. Let's just look at this for a moment as a source perhaps for debt discharge. So can we learn debt discharge from here or not? What do you say? I have a question, Rabbi. Is sure. on, on the last line, is that a typo that God spelled out in full? Because the time of the release for the last line for God has arrived, shouldn't there be? I mean, we usually have the hyphen instead of the O. Oh, oh, oh. no. Well, this is, we, we have the hyphen when um, when we're concerned that someone's gonna throw the book out. Oh. I guess I guess the, the JLI doesn't hyphenate because uh, they expect that people are not going to throw these books out. Okay, so it's not absolute. It depends on the circumstance. Yeah. yeah. So, so do you think that we can use this as a source to support uh, the idea of debt discharge or not? Yes. Okay. That's a if you're in the if you're in the lucky seventh year. <laughs> okay. So, but, but you are agreeing that it only happens every seven years. Yes. And it happened whether a person could, was, had the ability or didn't have the ability to pay back. It's like a lottery. Yes, lucky. Yeah. Lottery. So it's not really conventional bankruptcy or debt discharge. 
it's kind of something else. And in fact, it is not a good source for uh, bankruptcy and debt discharge, primarily for those reasons, because it was not something that somebody could use at another time. Um, and, um, and it didn't make a difference whether you could or whether you had the means to pay back the debt or not. It doesn't make a difference. You are exempted from paying it back at the time of the Shemitah. The real reason why this is required during the Shemitah year, like everything, and specifically connected with the Shemitah year, like everything else with the sabbatical year, is that the, the whole sabbatical year was intended to be a reminder that God runs the world, that God's in control, that God's in charge. And since amongst those things is that God really is the source of all wealth, not the debts that you have and not the loans that you have and so on and so forth. So therefore, um, the the debt was was uh, discharged at the Shemitah year, nothing to do with a person's means or not. Let's go further. Let's see some other sources and what they may teach us about um, about debt discharge. Sandrine, please read five A. When a lender demands payment of a loan, even if the lender is wealthy and the borrower is struggling for his basic subsistence, we are not merciful in judgment. Instead, we expropriate all the movable property that the borrower owns until the last penny of the debt is paid. If the movable property is not sufficient, we expropriate real property. Okay, and let's go, let's read one more here because this is, this is uh, also very important and then we'll kind of summarize what we're reading here. Me still? We yeah. tell the debtor, bring all the movable property that you have, don't leave out even a single needle. We give the debtor food for 30 days, closing for 12 months, not including things like silken clothes or golden turban a couch to sit upon and bed and sheets fit for the debtor to sleep upon. If he's a craftsman, we give him two tools of each type. Even a Torah scholar is not spare, his book or even a Torah scroll. They are like the rest of his possession that are sized by the creditor. Okay, so what we have here, these two, these two sources here, teach us something very powerful, that although so far, we have not seen um, a specific instrument for bankruptcy or de debt discharge in Jewish law. Uh, it's not like we're that nice to the, to the debtor either. Okay. We take away all their possessions, except we leave them with their basic means, but we take away all their possessions in order to pay off the debt. In other words, if they are not paying off the debt, we hold them accountable and we take everything they have. We don't leave them their golden turban. We leave them basic clothing. Even a Torah scholar, we take away his books, right? Because these are all owed to the lender and we have to take that into consideration. And in fact, it, um, our tradition tells us in Psalms that the wicked person borrows and does not repay. So somebody who's borrowing and is not repaying, obviously we're not talking about somebody who cannot pay um, or, or who, is, who, who chooses not to pay, somebody who could work and then 
is not going to work because they have, uh, despite the fact that they have a debt. So the Torah identifies this person as wicked. So we have, we have two sides of the coin here. On the one hand, we have clear responsibility that the debtor has to be invested in paying back to the extent that we call this person wicked if he doesn't. On the other hand, the creditor um, has, has instruction from the Torah not to treat the debtor with harassment. We don't put the, the debtor in jail and so on and so forth. So we see two, two really distinct obligations, um, which at first glance, we don't see a way to let the debtor off the hook, but at the same time, we don't have a right to torture and harass them. So I'm gonna skip the learning activities um, in the interest of time, but let's, let's pause for a moment and understand a little bit. Why is it that there is no concept of debt discharge in Jewish law? Why, why indeed is there no structure for that? So let's, let's actually play, let's play around with this idea for a minute. Um, when, when my name is Bank of America and I am lending you money, I'm giving you a mortgage on your house. Um, why, why should there be a means for you or an other who is not in the position to pay back to be able to declare bankruptcy? What, what is the logic as it relates to the creditor? Well, as it relates to the creditor, it would be a way to get something rather than nothing. Okay, so it, there's, there's, a, there's a good, good. What else? Also maybe to, to make a way out at some point of, of the debtor, you know, like I, I think about like a house, like at some point, uh, I remember back when the economy was bad, um, 2000, uh, you know, that you, you can say, okay, sorry. I said, when you said when the economy was bad, I was saying, when was that? You meant the other time when it was bad. Yes, those <laughs> Those are the time, 2009, um, that, you know, you, I, you know, we moved from Chicago to Atlanta, and that was not my case, but a lot of my colleagues, we had to move for work, but just give back their house to, um, to the bank. And, um, you know, and that entails that they don't get credit for four years and all that, but you know, at least they didn't go deeper um, into debt and, you know, they were able to move, continue with work. So it's a protection, the way you're yes. describing it, it's a protection for the debtor. I'm asking the question from the creditor's standpoint. From the creditor's standpoint, oh. why, why is that fair? So, so Adana gave one great reason. Um, at least the creditor should get something right? Yeah. That's, I guess, in, in some of the chapters where the debt is, the assets are protected and certain debts are paid off. But what else? What's, what's another reason why such a thing should be in place? I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Bank of America, 
And we don't have a problem with Bank of America per se. I'm just picking on Bank of America because that's what comes to mind right now. Bank of America makes a lot of money. They make a lot of money lending money on homes and for businesses, and they collect a lot of interest um, and they make a lot of money and they can choose in the interest of commerce, right? They take a certain amount of risk to engage in commerce and knowing that in this process of engaging in commerce and making a lot of profit, they're going to possibly lend money to some deadbeats or people that fall in hard times and the law protects them in order to ensure that there's, there's a, a, a commercial structure where people lend money and people borrow money, they pay interest, they, they have a way out if things go really sour and so on and so forth. Jewish law, though, is very different. Why is that different in Jewish law? Let's see who can, who can find the reason. Because we're supposed to care. We're supposed yeah, to care. It's like feeling. What's different about loans in Jewish law? There's a, a critical distinction. The, the well-being of the individual, the spiritual no. well-being. No? Something else. Something else. When a Jew lends money, what are they not allowed to do? Usury. Usury. Good. We're not allowed to charge interest, right? Mm-hmm. So if I can't charge interest, why would I ever lend you money? Right? And if you're telling me that I have to lend you money, then it would be very unfair for you to tell me, for God to tell me you have to lend money. And then when the person can't pay back, they can file for bankruptcy. That would be a very unfair method of doing business. So let's see all these sources in the text and it'll all come together. Lisa, please read for us. If there will be among you a needy person, you shall not harden your heart and you shall not close your hand to your needy brother. Rather, you shall surely open your hand to him and you shall lend him sufficient for his needs while he is lacking. So it's not this particular source, but, but this is a, an elaboration of an earlier source where the Torah says clearly that we have a mitzvah. It's a positive commandment to lend money. So we have a mitzvah to lend money. And at the same time, 7b, please read, Lisa. Rather, you shall surely open your hand to him and you shall lend him sufficient for his needs, which he is lacking. When you lend money to my people, to the poor person who is with you, you shall not behave towards him as a lender. You shall not impose interest upon him. So we have these two very seemingly uh, challenging, uh, I won't say conflicting, because they're not really conflicting, but two two uh, ideas that run up against each other that create real challenge to the idea of debt discharge. On the one hand, we have a mitzvah to lend money. And on the other hand, we have a, an, a, a prohibition of charging interest. So we're, we're told, God is saying to us, I want you to lend money to this person, but don't charge interest. So what happens when that person 
can't pay back. If we had a, if if they could discharge their debt, that puts me at a very uncomfortable position of lending money and being concerned that I never get it back. Does this make sense? Yes, confusing. I mean, yeah, it seems perplexing. <laughs> right? So therefore, we don't have a structure for debt discharge. Oh. But then the question comes back the other way. Okay, so now we understand why it is on the creditor's side, why there is no debt discharge, but what's the lenders, but what's the, what's the debtor supposed to do if they've really fallen on hard times and they can't pay back their debt? What do you say? So there's more Jewish tradition involved in here that answers that question. What does the Torah prescribe for somebody who's going hungry? To feed, help feed them. Right. right. So there's tzedakah. Tzedakah. So a person who's having a hard time making ends meet is able to live off of the tzedakah money. Again, we're not saying that they should use that as an escape from working. But the, the problem with debt is that it can bring a person to such a place where they can't even think straight, let alone go to work, right? So here we're saying, look, you still owe the money, but for now you have food to eat, you have a roof over your house, and then go to work and slowly make, start getting back on your feet and you'll start paying back your debt. Now, can, can, the, can the creditor go and collect the money from the tzedakah fund to pay back the loan that's owed to him? So Donna is vehemently shaking her head no, and we are going to go to the Radvaz. The Radvaz was a, who was the Radvaz? Here he is. Rabbi David Ibn Zimra. Um, he, he was born in Spain. He immigrated to Tzfat upon the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. He was in a successful businessman. Eventually he settled in Cairo. Then he came back to Israel where he authored um, some of his classic works, commentators on Maimonides. What I love about this is that this is 500 years old and the, uh, the application is very, very, I'm, on, I'm, on a, I'm teaching a class last week. Um, I'll give you a little when I come up, okay? But I can't right now. When I come up, I'll give you. Um, this case is 500 years old, and yet, read the story. Read, read what's going on here. This is a, a responsa um, from the Radvas. Go ahead, Donna. You asked me about the case of Reuben, a poor individual who receives a weekly stipend from the charity fund. His creditor demands that the custodian of the fund repay the debt from the charity funds allocated for Reuben. Is this permitted? Well, putting it this way, I would say like maybe 10%, like you can make us a, a payment schedule. But 
<laughs> and, and you uh, good. And you're saying that the payment schedule could even come from communal funds, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Let's see. To continue. Yeah. Reply. Reply. As a matter of law, once charity has been given to the poor person, there's just a dispute among the great legal authorities as to whether the creditor can seize these funds for the payment of his loan. One opinion is that it's forbidden to do so. The logic is that if the charitable giver had known that the creditor would seize the charitable gift, he would never have given it at all. However, Rabbi Simka and others ruled that the creditor could take his unpaid loan from charity given to the poor. The debate only pertains to surplus charity. However, with regard to the minimal charity allotted per week for the debtor's sustenance, no one argues that the creditor can take this. For if the poor person has enough to live on, without those funds, then why would he be taking from the charity fund? If he does not have enough to live, then how can one imagine that he should die of hunger while his creditor is repaid? Therefore, in our case, in our case, everyone agrees that the creditor cannot claim it. Okay, so very clearly that you cannot take the food out of this person's mouth, that's what they need to live off of. And they're not, they're not getting rich off of the community, they're just in a, in a survival mode. One more, one more uh, responsa here. Uh, Sandrine, would you read for us? On one hand, secular law is more generous to the debtor vis-a-vis -vis the relationship to the creditor. The secular law gives the debtor more escape hatches than does Jewish law. Jewish law basically say you have no way of escaping the clutches of the creditor, but that has to be understood in tandem with the fact that the communal responsibility towards the debtor are much greater. Alara says the loss is not going to be suffered by the creditor, but the loss will in effect be shared by society as a whole. It's really the theory of love spreading like insurance. Insurance is often described as a loss spreading mechanism. Instead of one person suffering a catastrophic loss, all of society through premium bears, oh, all of society through premium bear a little bit of that loss. I would describe the Alaric debt collection system that way as well, which means if you only look at it in terms of a creditor and a debtor, it looks like we have a fairly hard-headed system. The debtor has no mean of escape. But if you look at the total picture in terms of societal obligation, um, then you can actually see that it's really a very sophisticated loss-sharing mechanism. So what we have here, That although what I the way I understand this is that although the lender seems to be losing out in this instance, the flip side is it allows for the 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 uh, the debtor to begin to get back on their feet, and at the same time, the debt it remains owed to the lender. He's not exempted from the debt, 
Um, and were we to charge the community, so there, there, there is a, there is a, a, a sharing of loss. And I think that's the point here, then this, this responds. There's a sharing of loss because, because we don't have a debt discharge, so therefore the community has to step up to help this person back on their feet, but the community does not have to pay back the debt. But by helping the person back on their feet, they're empowering that person to make good on their debt eventually. Right, does that make sense? Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So now we have now we have another another question, um, and the, here's what we're going to do from now for the next twenty minutes. We're going to spend about ten minutes trying to understand um, local the, the the way we apply this in in Jewish law vis-a-vis -vis secular law, and how do we how do we how do we merge these two? How do we how do we coexist with them? And then what is what would be the halachic conclusion to Rabbi Metzger's scenario before? And we're going to present a few options there. So the first thing is, so we, we know that um, Jewish law is not in support of bankruptcy. But what happens when you live in a place where the laws do support bankruptcy? And we have a premise. Our forefather Abraham said that when he came to buy the land from uh, Ephron to bury Sarah, he said, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. I am both a stranger and a resident. And the commentators say, say, he, says, he says like this to them, if you want, I'll be like a stranger, meaning I will follow your laws. But if you're not going to be a, if you're not going to be accommodate, accommodating me, I'm sorry, I, if, if you treat me like a resident, then I'll follow your laws. But if you don't treat me like a resident and I'm going to be a foreigner, so then I'm going to do what my God says. And since this land belongs to me, because God promised it, I will take it without paying. In other words, I'm prepared to pay for it. But all, as long as you're a mensch, if you're not going to be a mensch, I'll take it by force. All right? That was the exchange. And ultimately, Abraham did pay for it and so on. But in this verse, a stranger and a resident, we actually learned from here um, some very powerful lessons for how a Jew needs to live in, in the diaspora. And it's a very interesting, it's an interesting question, I think a timely question, um, because both in terms of what's going on in the world right now and, uh, and what we've seen the last couple of years has been a lot of anti-Semitic events, and it brings to mind a reminder that a Jew, uh, we, we should never get very comfortable because we never know when, when we will be uh, challenged again. We maintain our faith in God and our trust in God. Um, and I also find it a little comical that, um, and I hope I don't offend anybody's political sensitivities, that you have people on one side of the aisle that think that, that their politicians are the big saviors of protecting the Jews from anti-Semitism, and the people on the other side of the aisle believe the exact same thing about their politicians, which means that there's nothing that's black and white about what's good for the Jews, and therefore Abraham's words ring very true today as they did 3,800 years ago, that on the one hand, we are residents here, 
But on the other hand, we are strangers. So the instruction is how do we live in a country when we live in this tension? So here we go. Um, I'm going to read this one because it's easy. So the Talmud says, Dina de Machos Adina. The law of the government is the law, which means a Jew needs to follow the laws of the country that they live in. Now, this, this next passage here is very important. Here we have a, a, uh, a, a disagreement between two of the commentators on the Shulchan Aruch and, the, um, and, and how they deal with this, the application of that statement of the Talmud. So Lisa, would you please present um, both of these opinions and see how, and then we'll, we'll discuss how these apply to our, our scenario. Okay, our text A, we only apply Dina and Demokata Dina when the law benefits the king or when it is for the welfare of the people of the land. Otherwise, we do not rule in accordance with non-Jewish laws as that would render Jewish law null and void. So let, let's think about what that means. When it's for the welfare of the people of the land, then we follow it. If it doesn't, if it if it doesn't benefit the people of the land, then we do not rule in accordance with non-Jewish law, as that would render Jewish law null and void. Okay. Rabbi, just and I was I was talking to my brother this morning. I listened to a rabbi, one of Rabbi Solish's when I was walking this morning, one of his daily power parshas, mm -hmm. And I think he said something like, it was really relevant. He said, when uh, Joseph was the viceroy of Egypt, right? He, he was, you know, wealthy and full of wealth. And we went from that to Moses, where, you know, from the era of Moses, where they were slaves in Egypt. It was, you know, completely the rule, the, the uh, rule of whoever, the ruler changed. And so the Jews' life completely changed. Yeah. According to the whim of the ruler, the king or whatever, the Pharaoh or that it went from, you know, Joseph to Moses. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that is a, that is a very powerful. So here we see, according to Rav Moshe Isserlis, who's known as the Rama, um, according to Rav Moshe Isserlis, we, we do follow the laws of the land uh, unless it rules not in accordance with Jewish law. Okay. Let us see. Let's see what, what the other uh, opinion says, and this is no, this rabbi is Rabbi Shabtai Cohen, otherwise known as the Shach. Go ahead, read. Text B, even as according to those who maintain that we always say Dina and Demakuta Dina, this is only true if the matter does not contradict a law of the Torah. That is, it is a matter not explicitly addressed in Jewish law. Jewish people should never judge according to non-Jewish law when they go against our Torah. Okay, so what would you say? Would you say when it comes to the matter of bankruptcy, um, would you say that both of these rabbis are in agreement, disagreement, or do we split the baby here about how they would apply the, uh, the rules of bankruptcy? I think I'm confused. What exactly is Dina? I, I, I don't have that. Dina, okay, sure. Let, let me elaborate. So Dina de Machus Dina means, that's what we read over here in the, uh, 
in the Talmud, the law of the government is the law. That means that a Jew, when a Jew is in a country, when in Rome, do as the Romans. When a Jew is in the United States, we have an obligation to follow U.S. law. We touched upon this briefly in, in our last class, but here we're digging into it a little bit. So the question is, how far does that instruction of the Talmud go? So according to the first commentator, the Ramah, he seems to give a broad description when the law of the land benefits the king or for the welfare, the welfare of the people, then we follow the law. Otherwise, we rule in accordance with Jewish law. The second opinion seems to indicate that we follow the law of the land even if, even if um, it might render a law of a, a Jewish law null and void as long as it doesn't contradict Jewish law. So the question is bankruptcy, let, let's, let's apply this to bankruptcy, okay? Does bankruptcy law benefit the king or the welfare of the people of the land, as we've been discussing? No. Um, oh, it, it, it benefits those that can use the law, yeah, that declare right. bankruptcy. And, and, and as we said, it, it allows for commerce, right? Yeah. That, that's yeah. the logic behind uh, the establishment of, yes. of bankruptcy laws. Yes. So, so even though Jewish law says that we, even though Jewish law does not have an, a, an instrument of debt discharge in this manner, but since, according to the first text A, according to that opinion, because the law is to the benefit of the people of the land, and even though it's not necessarily in agreement with Jewish law, we would still follow, I'm sorry, we would, we would, we would only follow it. I'm sorry, hold on a second. Now I'm, I'm confusing myself. Okay, good. Yeah, so according to text A, we bankruptcy would apply. We would follow the laws of bankruptcy since it benefits the people, even though it, even though Jewish law does not rule in that same way, um, because it benefits the people, the land, and you're not you're not in violation of Jewish law when you declare bankruptcy on the land. So it's all good to go. According to the second text. In declaring bankruptcy, the, the establishment of bankruptcy as, a, as an instrument contradicts Jewish law. So since it contradicts Jewish law, we don't follow it. We don't follow the law that contradicts Jewish law. No different than if secular law says you have to work on Shabbos, that's a direct contradiction to Jewish law, and therefore you violate the secular law and you work on Shabbos. I'm sorry, and you and you don't and you keep Shabbos, right? That's a religious matter, but even when it comes to a legal matter, if the secular law, if the law of the land directly contradicts a law of Jewish law, we don't follow the law of the land. That's the instruction of Rabbi Shabtai Meir Ben Meir HaKohen. So we Rabbi, see. Oh, what about the blue laws? I mean that. Like I grew up, I grew up in South Carolina. Very much, the blue laws were very much in effect. They, they, you were not allowed to 
open on Sunday. So Jewish merchants had to close on Saturday and Sunday. Good. So does does the, that's a great example actually. When being closed on Sunday, is that a violation of Jewish law in any way? Is there anywhere in Jewish law that says no. you have to work on Sunday? No. 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 So so that would be something that both opinions would agree that you should follow. Follow the law of the land. But does you can't any- you may you, you would yeah. lose your business, your whole weekend business by that. By, you talking- would lose Saturday and Sunday business. Okay, so that's a, that's a separate issue. And that is if the, the, the fact that we have to be closed on Shabbos is by Torah law. The secular law doesn't mm-hmm. say that we have to be closed or that we have to be open, right? So that's a separate issue. The question is about the Sunday law that we have to be closed on Sunday. The fact that the, the, the Torah says that you should follow the law of the land and there's nowhere in the Torah that says that you have to be open on Sunday. So therefore, according to both opinions, you would have to follow the law. The fact that you might not be able to make a living if you were open on, uh, if you were closed on both Saturday and Sunday is immaterial to this discussion. You got to move or find a different job or God should bless you with income in five days. And, and look, and it's a, it's a question for a lot of people who... Um, who keep Shabbos, that they have to find, make peace with the fact that they're not going to, and by the way, not every, not every business makes money on Sunday, right? There's certain businesses that are Monday through Friday, you know, uh, law firms and accounting firms and so on. But let, 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 let's, let's, let's continue over here. But I, that, that's a, actually, lot of mer- a lot of merchants went into wholesale business because. Right. That they, way they, they were able to that, do it. That's, that's what happened. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's go to how Rabbi Metzger, Rabbi Metzger, um, I'm going to skip through this. Let's go to how the rabbi resolved the, the, uh, the matter here. Um, oh, well, actually, okay, so before that, let's, let's talk a few, a few other things here. And that is... Um, there's a reference here to the idea of custom, the custom of the land um, and the custom of merchants, that uh, merchants agree to certain principles. We spoke about this in the last class, that any, any condition when it comes to matters of, of commerce are kept. Um, so if two people agree to something, whether we would apply it in this scenario or not, but there are other, there are other considerations. One is the idea of justice. As the verse says, justice, justice shall you pursue. Um, and that is that there are times where we have to uh, compromise a, a settlement. Um, so here is, here's what the rabbi concluded. The rabbi concluded as follows, that in the case of an insolvent debtor who settled with his creditors by repaying a certain percentage of the debt and who afterwards was restored to his fortune, the latter-day legal decisors are locked in disagreement as to whether or not he is obligated to repay the outstanding debt. Therefore, all must be done to reach a compromise between the debtor and the creditors in order to satisfy all legal opinions. So his point is that we don't have an answer. It's hard to, we are undecided as to whether we follow the law of the land and he's off the hook or whether the Torah's law remains in place here and, um, and the debt is still owed. So therefore, 
we take a, a um, what's called an extra legal moral perspective. And the extra legal moral perspective is to try to bring the two parties to some kind of compromise. Because that way there's, there is some measure of win-win and, and perhaps some measure of lose-lose, but at least people get something out of it. Um, and then inherently a person needs to realize that when you borrow money, even if sometimes the law lets a person off the hook, that we have a, we have a responsibility to pay back. As we know, I'm not gonna read this right now, it's too long, but uh, Mark Twain himself writes of a story where um, he, he ended up with, a, uh, with a, a large amount of debt because of some partners that he had taken on and, um, and the business failed. And even though it was his name, the, the, the loans were given on account of his good name. And so he spent four years traveling the world, engaged in speaking engagements in order to pay off the debt, even though he was, number one, it wasn't his full responsibility, but because of his own good name, he wanted to preserve that. So just a fascinating, you know, you have a person like Mark Twain who took a responsibility at the age of 60 to make sure that he paid off a debt that, um, that he had. Um, we also find um, an interesting thing around the idea of uh, medical malpractice. And that is that Jewish law does not require a doctor who harmed a patient unintentionally to, to, uh, to, to carry, to carry li obligation, legal obligation. Nonetheless, it says that he has a moral obligation to pay the victim. So we see again the idea of um, going above and beyond. And as we've discussed over, over this class tonight, that there are certain very clear benefits to paying back the debt. It's good for society because lenders will continue to lend. It's good for you to keep your word. And it's good for you to, from an ethical position, never to take advantage of, um, of other people and their, uh, their willingness to help us out. Um, bottom line is that we don't have any clear conclusion that Jewish law has a framework for uh, bankruptcy. Um, and, though, and, and so we maintain our obligation unless we find ourselves in a situation where that is in conflict, at which point we try to resolve that by, uh, by compromise or finding some other way to make good on the debt. So I hope that was a, we rushed it a little bit at the end, but I wanna make sure you guys are able to get to your class. And um, any questions, please email, text, and you're welcome to ask me a question now also if you like. I just want to say one quick thing. Yeah. We actually had some, this actually applied in, in one of our earlier um, daily power partial classes, right so, kind of when the pandemic was starting and the unemployment payments were just coming in. Uh -huh. for some people. So a question was in the group, if I'm getting unemployment, do I still need to give sadaqa on that unemployment? And Rabbi Salish said, preferably if it's not too much of a burden. Good, fascinating. Yeah, very good, beautiful. Have a good class. And uh, thank you for joining tonight. Thank we'll see you. you guys next week, back at the eight o'clock time. You.
Yes. Thanks, Rabbi. Thank you. You're welcome. Good night. You're welcome. Have a good night.